there's one thing that a mask has reminded me of, it's that my breath smells. <laughs> Maybe that'll help hygiene. Um, so I'm glad I get a break for a moment. I normally ask Elizabeth for gum, but I forgot to this morning. Um, well, good morning, y'all. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. If you're new, um, we especially want to extend a warm welcome to you. And um, if, if, if this is a place you've not been to in a while, we hope that it's meaningful. We hope that it's honest. We hope that um, you'll hear something of good news, um, that God is a friend of sinners. Um, as was mentioned, my name is Skylar. I'm the campus minister at ECU, and I love being the Presbytery's pastor um, to students at East Carolina University. We've been doing uh, Psalms for the summer, right? And um, we've, we've heard lots of good introductions, and so we're, we're poised to understand these well and to appreciate them um, as well. So I, I don't want to belabor that point, um, but just real, real briefly, just by way of reminder, um, repetition is the key of learning, right? And so I just want to remind us as, as we move into our Psalm this morning that um, songs have an effect, literally, right? They, they capture a moment that people might share with each other. I think about the stories of music in American history, the story of jazz, the story of black gospel music, the story of American country music. Each of these genres tell a story of a people who are sharing memories together, who are instructing themselves and the people that would come after them what's good, what's right, what's worth living for. Now, I'm not saying each and every one of those songs within those genres represents that. <laughs> but it is true of the Psalms themselves. So let's remind ourselves that the song that we're going to read today was a song to be sung. They're not necessarily the best for preaching. I think that was mentioned last week. As much as they have theology in them, they're not necessarily for theological conclusions. So I hope that I can take the posture of honoring this genre as it is and trying to sort of manipulate it into a sermon. But this morning, I want us to see that the song that we're going to sing, like any song that we sing, actually begins to produce the thing that we're singing about. You remember when your mom told you not to listen to that music? Why? Because there's wisdom. And knowing what you sing over your soul, yes, it's there, having an effect on it, making it believe in it. So this morning, let's recognize that as we look at Psalm 131, we actually find ourselves living in light of its truth as we sing it. So honestly, I think the best way to do this would just to Let's just go around the room and sing this 50 times. That might be the best way to do this. But I'll spare us of that. As you make your way to Psalm 131, I need you to know that I dreaded my kindergarten naps. It was awkwardly long and too quiet. In fact, on one occasion, I stuck a staple right in my forehead because it was just too boring. And I needed, I need, I needed maybe I was just deprived of attention, but... I just didn't like my kindergarten naps. I also remember my, uh, moments of silence in school. I grew up in the church, so uh, praying wasn't a problem, you know, in those at school, praying or anything. But every now and then, if that moment of silence got too long, I was like, who's ready for this to end, you know? How about that awkward silence 
that we've all experienced with, with a colleague or with our spouse. Like that. <laughs> I'm often the, the source of awkward silence with many students. I don't know what they're always thinking as I just kind of stare at them uh, blankly. Um, but I do it in love. The name of this sermon is Becoming Quiet. We're going to listen to David reflect as he wrestles with the noise of his life and of his ministry. Let's read it together. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And he's given it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, you made it all. You made it all. And our ambition broke it all. Jesus, you fixed it all. And Spirit, you are restoring it all. Lord, help us to wrestle well this morning as we live in this tension of being rescued but not restored. As we wear the casts of your grace, but we're eager for our bones to be fully healed. Lord, quiet us with your love this morning. Be tender, be gentle, draw us to your son Jesus, Spirit, we pray. Amen. Many scholars will call this a confidence psalm. Confidence psalm. There's another psalm that's categorized that way, and it's Psalm 16. Let me read to you a line from Psalm 16 and see if we can't catch what is meant by this word confidence. Psalm 16, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You will not abandon my soul. Do you hear it? The scholars are saying that Psalm 131 is, is almost like an aspirational psalm. It hopes for the confidence and contentment it proclaims. And it waits for that to become true. Another pastor referred to this psalm as a maintenance psalm. Like maintenance on your vehicle or maintenance to those wildly bushes in your front yard. And he, he writes this. Psalm 131 prunes away unruly ambition and infantile dependency. Did you get that? What we might call getting too big for our britches and refusing to cut the apron strings. David is journaling about his soul. And he's seeking real, not fake, confidence and contentment in the Lord. So the banner truth this morning, the place that I hope that we will arrive is this, contentment is a process to be practiced. Contentment is a process to be practiced. We're not going to get there all the way, but I, I want you to see that this wasn't my harebrained idea. I, I got it from verse 2 in this image of the weaned child. But here's the thing. We don't have to search too far to find that 
We lack contentment. Is that an oversimplification? If you're like me, you want to eavesdrop on heaven's conference room door. We want to meddle in the things that happen behind the curtain of heaven. We're nosy, we pry, we're distracted, and our souls are restless. This is what one blogger wrote. I don't know if he's a Christian, but see if this resonates. By favorable calculations, I misuse 93% of my time. Man, you need to get a new job. (laughs) The resulting guilt is a poisonous low-level radiation that creates a self-powered shame spiral. In fact, I'll waste an entire day searching for dopamine hits to medicate the fact that I'm not getting anything done the same day. I'm a distraction junkie. In many ways, I'm representative of American contradiction, incredibly busy and willfully slothful. People say I'm the busiest person they know, but I know what my days actually produce, and it feels like not much. Even though I've got a to-do list the size of hell's roll call, I revert to shopping for stuff I don't need and nibbling social media pellets. These distractions are like refined sugar for my soul. They're brief. They're enjoyable, and they're crashing. Are you here this morning? Like here. What what is rattling around? And I don't say that to help you to avoid it. I say that that, that I'm glad that that's here with you. And this is what we do. When expert solutions don't solve our problems, I think this psalm teaches us that on the one hand, we're tempted to be grandiose, and yet when that doesn't work, we're then intimidated to being infantile. Let me put it another way. I like to play golf. We start with ambitious, grip it and rip it theology, and then we become compulsively religious when that doesn't work. We start with a stiff upper lip to our frenetic souls. And when that doesn't win and bring the peace that we crave, we resort to religious time. And neither of which produce the quiet soul that David is coaching his soul to have. It's not easy to have a quiet soul. So if contentment is a process to be practiced, What is that process? And instead of trying to create something clever out of these verses, I just thought we would just go through them. Verse one, two, and three. Let's remind ourselves of verse one. David says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, or my eyes aren't raised too high. David is journaling that he doesn't think too highly of himself. Let's think about pride for just a moment. There's a million definitions for it, but here's a couple. I think pride is taking your life, your circumstances, your relationships, your achievements, all that you have into your own hands. I think that's one way to think about it. I think it's also our embarrassing attempt to imitate God. And David is saying, I'm not like that, Lord. But let's, let's do two quick case studies on David. First, 1 Samuel 17. 
This is the story of that great Philistine Goliath hammering God's people. And they call the shepherd boy to deliver them. God calls the shepherd homely boy to rescue them. In that moment, David is literally exercising that he's not taking the killing of evil Goliath in his own hands, but rather an instrument for the Lord's salvation. All right, David, that's true of you. Your heart isn't lifted up. But let's also consider 2 Samuel 11. David's lifted heart justifies his staying home while his army is fighting. His raised eyes see someone beautiful and convinces himself it is his. Bathsheba. He impregnates her then he kills her husband. That son does not live. His heart is not lifted. His eyes are not raised high. We see that David is a mixed bag. And right off the bat, I, this is where I think this contentment process reminds us that it is in fact that. David is trying to do what all good kings do, and that is to model, model covenant fidelity. To show what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to sound like, to not be a prideful person within God's family. Thus, we must practice it as well. But see, here's the problem, or one of the problems. Our, our, don't hear what I'm not saying. Our culture is in no way worse um, than, than the geopolitical scene of, of David's era, okay? But I think one thing has happened as it, as it relates to this issue of pride. I think our cultural conversation has flipped the script on this. What was once an ancient vice, right? There was like all kinds of stories told and written about what arrogance leads to, right? Today is now held up on every side as a virtue, and it's urged as profitable and rewarded. Pride is basic wisdom these days. Yeah, we put lipstick on it. Yeah, we put nice clothes around it. But we are told to improve ourselves by whatever means you're able to get ahead regardless of the price and take what is yours first. This is the narrative of our life around us. Thus, we must practice saying, soul, you're not lifted up and your eyes aren't raised today. Because as you tell yourself that you aren't, you learn that you are. David moves in verse one to the second half and he makes this connection for us. He, he connects the, the sin of pride to the sin of presumption. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. David is writing that he doesn't overestimate his reach. Y'all, he had the most powerful power in the kingdom. And I don't think he's being falsely modest. Or at least he's not intending to be. He doesn't presume to know the reasons for God's providences. He's content, or he's at least coaching himself to be, not to worry 
about what's happening in heaven's conference room. You see, he understands that one of the nasty monsters of pride is this unruly, guilely ambition. Two more case studies. First Samuel 24. David has been fleeing from Saul, the current king. I've, I've talked about this in probably both of the previous sermons. But can you imagine the setting? He's, he's, he's gotten to a place where he's really close to him like physically close. They, they miss each other. And, and, the, and as the scriptures tell us, that David resists an opportunity to take what is his. You all remember, David has been anointed king by God, by God, not just another person. The person on the throne is not anointed by God. And here comes this person out of view of, of, of a people that had he done it would probably not even be mad. But he doesn't. As pride might have whispered in David's ears that grabbing what is there, literally Saul could be his, he doesn't. It's true, at least in that instance, that he doesn't occupy himself. But let's look at another one. 2 Samuel 24. The first was 1 Samuel 24. The second is 2 Samuel 24. This one isn't as um, well known. This is where David counts his army. All of redemptive history has shown that God fights for his people. This puny little nation state called Israel, this fledgling um, kin, you know, big family doesn't win wars. It is God who fights. And in a moment of insecurity, David's lifted heart becomes selfishly ambitious. And he exchanges trust in the God who fights for him with a pathetic power grab. Calvin writes about this Psalm 131. Those who yield themselves up to the influence of ambition will soon lose themselves in a labyrinth of perplexity. I don't use the word labyrinth or perplexity much, but I think Calvin is saying ambition, unruly ambition, right? Paul says don't have selfish ambition. We're going to kind of tease that out in a minute. Life gets confusing. Morality gets blurred. Love for people becomes love of self at the, extent, at the expense of of people. And we see this in 2 Samuel 24. As soon as David has done this, what is recorded literally three verses later, Lord, what I've done is very foolish. Aspiration is not bad, Christian. But when sin taints and corrupts, as it does, even our best aspirations, we become selfishly ambitious and that's where this journal entry takes us pride produces this this character this behavior in us and meanwhile our culture encourages it we're surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion as acquisition as fame as Joe McGowan has taught me, it, it's about dominating the other countries on the map. 
Everyone wants to get more. And it's the oldest sin in the book. It's the one that kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. It's the one that kicked Lucifer out of heaven. So, this is verse 1. Contentment is a practice to be processed. And David, he's a mixed bag on both of these lyrics that he writes. On one occasion, it's true of him. On another, it's definitely not true of him. And as he, as the covenant leader of his people, is seeking to model and coach them, he invites ourselves to sing something that's not true of ourselves so that it might become true. Just a, probably a flimsy attempt at application here, but maybe, are you, is anyone familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality type testing? This is a, it's been around a long time, and they, they, they try to give us categories to help us learn how to communicate and relate to other people, recognizing that we all do this differently. And one of the pieces of, of the Myers-Briggs process is to identify essentially how you understand the world, how information makes its way into you. All right, there's another one that tells you how you, how you, you know, send that information back out. But there's one that talks about how you move about the world, how you make sense of things. And this is that SN segment of the Myers-Briggs. Real quick, Ns are those people who more, more, more often than not sort of move about the world and seek to understand their life and, and the people around them through um, sometimes metaphor or um, more, more, more symbolic ways of understanding things. Sometimes they're not the um, clearest and most articulate communicators because they don't think sometimes logically. They're, it's a little bit more circular. You think about your artists and uh, your, your musicians, that they're often, they often understand the world this way. This is how they're able to write music that gives voice to things that you can't just say, that hurt. But they write six words that help us really get to what it means to hurt. S's, on the other hand, they live more, um, it's not a binary, it's just a, it's just a, a tendency. They, seem, they tend to understand things more directly, more as they see them, right? It's, it's an in practice to see the meal as a sacrament. It's an S practice to see bread and juice, all right? Your S's are your really good doctors and your really good attorneys and your really good engineers. All right. I'm not here to do a TED talk on that. I think the invitation from verse one is to try to be a little bit more S. Don't get lost in the forest of your life and its meaning and its purpose and, and where it's going. And try to be faithful with today. It's often said that the ends, they, they get lost in the clouds and S's get lost in the trees. And I think David is inviting us, as the Holy Spirit has invited, has, has, has spoken through him. Don't get lost in the clouds. Keep your to-do list short. Do something. Don't try to connect everything. Because I think that the, an immediate source of discontentment is when we begin to try to make sense of things that are utterly nonsensical. Dave's cancer. It's not about asking why of God, okay? It's not about asking why. You just can't gaslight him. You can't try to manipulate him into telling you something because you want him to feel bad for you. 
And some of our manipulative hearts will try to do that. I've tried to do that. It's not about saying, God, why did you do that? Why did you allow that? That's what the Psalms give us voice to. But as we seek contentment, we, we, we end it there. I don't know why. But I'm learning that you love me. So in contrast to this pride and presumption that David sometimes resists and sometimes falls prey to, he reflects on the gift of contentment that God has given to him. And he uses a perfect, man, God must have written this image. Look at verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence here. But can we talk about that for just a second? Some of you might be young parents. We're we're not far away from that um, nursing season of life. But, But a mom will tell you who has an infant that not only is her milk, whether it's, you know, however it's dispensed, sorry, that was too much, um, is not only a source of food, it's a source of comfort. Have you ever watched a young mother, like almost instinctively and, and with great anticipation, move toward her child? Not to just feed him or her, but to soothe her. I mean, as a, as a dad, sometimes I've known nothing else to do, but Dory would be like, just, just, just feed. And David is saying that his soul has made a transition from being a nursing son of God to a weaned child of God. You see, the, the nursing infant is comforted by the prospect of what can be given to him or her. And weaning a child is that process in which a child becomes comforted by the mother him herself. And David is making this analogy between a child which no longer frets for what it used to find indispensable and the soul which has learned a similar lesson. In other words, he is, he is writing about the freedom that he's found from self-seeking in verse 1. David's no longer calmed by the prospect of getting something from God, but he's calmed by his very presence. One theologian said, his life's center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. You know, the process from nursing to weaning is a noisy business. It takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of resilience. And it's almost always conceivably seen by the child as neglectful. But it's not. Spurgeon writes this, and it is so good. To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, even though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Christ's 
Have you found your solace in the Lord? It's not easy to quiet our souls. Many of us come here this morning and that thing that is wrestling around is anxious, deeply afraid, deeply angry, or resentful. Many of us are, are just waiting for that next affirming conversation. Some of us are just heavy with guilt that you keep denying. And all of us, before Jesus, were hell-bent on making meaning for ourselves. We're all seeking to relieve the sting of our failures and to sweeten the letdown of missed expectations. All of us know what a noisy soul feels like. But if grace has really moved into our hearts, if the message of the gospel has actually renewed who we are, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it as long as we have him. The joys of acclaim, wealth, and power are nothing, nothing compared to the eternal acclaim, wealth, and power we have in him. As that one commentator said, has the center of gravity in your soul moved from the circumstances to Christ? A good practice, right? Contentment is a process to be practiced. If you haven't done any soul searching, it might be helpful to just to identify what that thing that just kind of keeps moving around that you can't find comfort from. It's a good first step. Jesus gave us this picture in Matthew 18 and Mark 10 about the, chi- the children that came up to him. You all remember this. And what's important to note is that despite what many of us have been taught, the, the child's helplessness it is not the point of that image. Right? Sometimes we, we read about he let the children come to him and the disciples were ticked off about that as you need, to have, you need to be a helpless child before Jesus. But I think what's more accurate of that is that Jesus is saying that those that are his have a willingness to be led, to be taught, and to be blessed. David is making this move from like dependency, Right? to some sort of separation, and yet this separation is good. Thus, I think it makes sense to see this image that Jesus would later give to us with children. It's not about becoming um, just hopelessly and helplessly dependent, though of course we are, but it's also this willingness to be led, to be taught, and to be blessed. Paul in Philippians 4 described um, his practice of contentment. And I want, I want to just, if, if you'll indulge me for just a minute. He says this, Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, pray, right? Then he goes on and says, whatever is honorable, whatever is good, whatever comes from heaven, essentially, Listen, practice these things. And the God of peace 
will be with you. It's as if David has made this move between peace being a gift from God and his soul is recognizing that peace is God. I don't don't want anything he can give me if I can't have him. The child doesn't want the absent father who pays for everything. He wants his dad. Then he goes on to say, not that I am speaking of being in need. This is likely physical need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, Paul says. I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Y'all, that's the context for the verse that we all know. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We'll land on verse three. David transitions from journaling to um, exhorting, and I've made the point already, but God's king was to be his covenant ambassador. The king was supposed to make the people want godliness. They were supposed to see their king and want Jesus. And this is why it was so angering to God when selfish men would assume that throne. And so this is what he's doing. He's moving from journaling to say this, hope in the Lord, Israel, from this time forth and forever. David holds out hope for his people. Hope for what? How is this connected? Hope for complete contentment in God alone. He wants his people to be content in their Savior. And so as their leader, he holds it out for them. David has learned, I'm convinced, through this psalm, as he moves from pride to an image of faith to then exhorting his people to do likewise, that God is a God of process. Did you know that the garden was a process project? They were called to cultivate. They were called to make a city. Did you know he let his own children wander in the desert for hundreds of years? Did you know that the apostles thought that he was going to come back before they died? Did you know that Jesus didn't just show up and walk away one day later? Weaning, potty training, exercising, retirement, all of your life is a process. And David recognizes this. And extends and invites his people to hope. Y'all, their story was about to get way worse before Jesus arrives. They were going to be taken into captivity. Were they actually going to be able to sing this song? He invites them to. And some of you will not be fully content. (laughs) All of us. That was the wrong word. Before the new heavens and new earth. Okay? Okay? Real quick, you will never be cursed for not being content, Jesus. You you will never be dismissed because you are discontent, 
Jesus. Contentment is a sanctification, not a glorification problem. In many of us, the noise of our life may never go away. Pastor Tripp Sanders, PCA minister in Winston-Salem, took his life last Saturday. The disease of depression Fight for contentment, but no, until he comes back, we won't be. So, this is why songs are so important. They help people join together as they wait for that, right? We don't need an essay, we need a song. We need something to give voice to something that we can't say. This is what that new day looks like. Zephaniah chapter 3, 7th century BC, prophet about the time of Josiah, good king in Israel. He writes about the prophecy that God's given him, and he says this The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This was a message to the remnant of God's people. Zephaniah didn't know exactly to whom this prophecy was for. Can you imagine when we either go home to see Jesus or he brings heaven down that one, one day, we will be worshiping our king But did you know he sings over you? There is a day when the chorus of heaven, the voice of God, and the melody of Jesus will finally soothe your bruised soul. Why? How? Because Jesus was fully weaned from the Father. So we can linger in the lap of our God. Christ prays hope in the Lord. Psalm 31 is, is a journal entry turned into a prayer for people. That we would realize that contentment is a practice that we process that a process that we practice. That as Augustine would say, our souls are restless until they find their rest in him. And for some of us, that rest may not come until the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end. But may we be a people, because our Savior has been weaned from his Father on that dreadful day, that we will never, we will never be pushed aside. Instead, we can linger in the lap of our God. Lord, make it so in our hearts. Help us to believe. Give us hope, corporate hope. We don't tarry alone. We we tarry as a people bound by the blood and, and bread of Jesus. Teach us and show us what contentment looks like. We've seen it 
our Savior, the one time we heard about his soul, he says it was sorrowful. It's the only time we hear about it. Because his soul was at the depths of sorrow. Sorrow will never overtake us. Help us to see that in this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.